upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose. And he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, very special guest. He's an author and a wrestling historian. He's got a new book coming out, A Blood and Fire, The Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Chic. He is Mr. Brian Solomon. Brian, welcome to the two-man power trip. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm glad to uh, be invited. Now, when I saw this book kind of uh, first... I guess it was on social media. You must have been posting that you were doing some chic stuff. I'm like, wow, I can't believe she's getting a book. It seems like one of those guys that would be in kayfabe lore forever. So this is awesome. So what kind of led you to first doing the book? Well, it's kind of uh, like what you just said, just the fact that no one had ever done it. Um, it just seemed like a big hole to me, like a major gap. Um, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Pro Wrestling FAQ, and it had some little capsule biographies and uh, of uh, major wrestlers from over the years. And one of them was the Sheik. And, you know, I learned a lot about him writing that book. And it just got me thinking of all of the legends, especially of his time. Um, I couldn't think of a bigger name and I still can't that has never had a book done about them, especially, you know, a name from the past. So I thought, well, I mean, this has got to be fixed. You know, I mean, I knew about the Sheik, uh, his heyday is a little before my own time as a fan, but just from being a historian and researching the business and stuff, I, I've always been fascinated like, with the Detroit territory, for example. And, you know, I felt like it was time to try to tell his story. I and mean, I knew it would be hard because, like you said, he's been really the most kayfabed um, persona in maybe in wrestling history. So I really felt like, uh, you know, I had my work cut out for me. Uh, I'm not going to say it was easy, but. Um, I knew what I was getting into when I when I decided to take it on. It's me. He's one of those guys where it's like everything about him is, you know, it's mystique, aura, like, wow, this guy was, you know, 
keeping kayfabe, but it's like maybe, maybe that was the way he really was. You know what I mean? He kind of blurred the lines. Yeah, I mean, he he. I learned a lot about him doing the book because he was um, obviously he was a real person, which mm-hmm. you know sometimes people wonder how far did he take it, you know? And I get into that in the book, like you know. <laughs> What was he at home at dinner, you know, eating the, the curtains in the living room? And was he setting the, the, you know, the couch on fire and that sort of thing? And, you know, um, obviously not. So I had to break through that veneer and find out, you know, like, where did it begin? Where did it end? You know, and I would talk to people who obviously confirmed to me that, yes, you know, I mean, the minute he walked through the curtain coming back into the locker room, he was Ed Farhat. You know, he was himself. And as as much as that makes perfect sense um to fans of that era it's uh, kind of a revelation because he sold it so well that even to this day people don't really know how much was real and how much was his character you know it's like one of those things that drew a lot of us to wrestling in the first place especially in the pre-internet days of just you, you know you know it's a work but you don't really know how it all works and you're curious to find out you know, was this real? Was this part real? How did, how did they do this? How did they do that? And his whole gimmick really played into that really well. And, um, you know, I felt like this is the first time that his, you know, Farhad as a person has ever been addressed. I tried to find out about his entire life, not just his wrestling career, you know, his matches and things and who he beat and all that. You can look that up online, but, and that's all in there, but I wanted to um, really tell a story of a person's life, you know, a human being's life. With him, was it like hard to find info and and knowledge? Because it seems like it would be. Yes, (laughs) it was. Uh, Because, you know, I really wanted uh, um, to have uh, the involvement of his family. I really thought that would have been very helpful. And I think, you know, the secretive nature that he had, uh, that is something that is kind of carried on by his surviving family. And, you know, at the time I was kind of in talks with his two sons, Eddie Jr. and and Tommy, and they were, you know, Eddie Jr. is the older one. He was kind of the spokesman. And they were very hesitant and they, they've always been hesitant to really help anybody to do a book like this. And they had talked about doing their own book on their dad, but you know, it it just never happened. They never did it. Um, And they were just starting to come around to maybe helping out. And unfortunately they both passed away. They both of them passed away during the the making of this book. Um, Tommy um, had cancer and, and Eddie died of um, complications from COVID-19. So it was, um, something that I really had to do on my own um, and, and look where to find stuff wherever I could, you know, and I, I spoke to close friends, some of whom are still alive. Like I talked to flying Fred Curry, who's still with us and he was very close to the family. You know, I was able to talk to uh, people that were close to them, but typically later in the sheik's life very often, you know, just because so much time has passed. But I mean, I I looked up his military records, you know, he fought in world war II. I looked up his birth records. I looked up his death records. I I was able to get 
um, a lot of information even from looking up his genealogical records and things like that. Uh, Ancestry.com. I mean, the the there's so many tools at the disposal of researchers today for things like this. And you know, I didn't get my dream come true, which is to have a baby picture of the sheik in my book. But that would have been the holy grail for me. But but I did uh, find out a lot of personal information about his um, life and his his history. It's funny. Who would have thought he was a, a war veteran? You know what I mean? Like that's like so crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, you know, I have his. There's a copy of his draft card in the book. And it talks about, you know, I was able to look up based on learning what division he was in. He was part of George Patton's army, and I found out the exact division that he was in. And just through research of learning what that division went through in the war and where they campaigned, I was able to discover exactly where he was in World War II and in, in, in Europe and what – what areas was he in? What was the time frame of when he was there? What was he doing? He was a, he was driving a tank, and he was 19 years old, 19 year old kid, and he's driving a tank in Bavaria, you know, at the tail end of World War II. Thankfully, when he got there, it was right before the European War ended, but he did see some combat. So, I mean, stuff like that was, as far as I know, it's stuff that's never been out there in any form. So I think that people are going to learn a lot from this book, um, even people who think they know everything about him because they're fans. Um, they're going to find out a lot. And you know, I know one of the guys that's really been in my corner through all this has been Dave Brzezinski, who was the last manager of the Sheik, and he was a friend and kind of a confidant um, of his for years. And he you know, was one of the first ones to say that to me when he was looking through the book for me and just kind of giving me pointers and you know he he helped kind of read it through for me and that was one of the first things he said was just how much he learned that he never knew and how much he he you know he said this that he really thinks that people are going to be blown away with the level of detail in the book and that's when I really started feeling like I was going in the right direction do you feel like he was definitely hidden like you're even saying with his own manager like was he even that guarded and that hidden with guys in the business well, he had to he had to trust you, you know. Um, like Dave told me that when he first got into the wrestling business as a photographer in the kind of tail end of the '60s when he was a kid, and just right at the beginning of the '70s, um, that he barely got to really even know him. Everything was through his wife Joyce, <clears throat> who was kind of like the business end of the business. And slowly but surely, over the years. He started to get to know the actual person of Ed Farhad and get close to him. And, you know, he had like an inner circle, you know, and but but I mean, I remember hearing stories even from, you know, like Rob Van Dam, who was a trainee of his and who wrote the uh, forward of the book. Um, and even even Sabu has said this, that there were times when they were terrified of him when he was training them or they were <laughs> around him as as very young wrestlers because he would even sometimes be in character around them. Um, and they, they didn't, they were, they were afraid of him. There were times where they were legitimately afraid of him. So he cultivated this image that he lived uh, to the hilt. You know, I mean, when he was in public in places where he knew he'd be recognized, um, his wife did everything. She ordered food at restaurants. She 
would order, you know, the gas at the gas station. She she handled everything. And for that reason, too, he used to travel a lot with her when he would go abroad, like to Japan or out to California, because she would be his mouthpiece because he didn't want to break character. Wow, that's pretty intense. Like, I wonder how she felt about that. Well, you know, the interesting thing about her, again, someone that I wish I had had a chance to know and talk to. Unfortunately, you know, she passed away about 10 years ago. But um, she seems to have been, by all indications, extremely dedicated, extremely loyal to him. She helped him to build that business. She was game for anything. If you think about how in the beginning of Sheik's career, or not in the very beginning, but in some of the early years, he had her as his valet. and She played the part of kind of a slave girl you know he would be the sheik and he would have his slave girl this is even before he had abdullah farouk as a manager and you know you think about this this wasn't long after they had gotten married you know they, they got married in, in 49 and a few years later you know she's doing this with him and they have a small son together <laughs> and you know you had to think like any woman at this point would be thinking what did i get myself into here and she seemed to really be up for the challenge and when they had their own wrestling territory um, in the Midwest, she was the one. Everybody said this to a person. She was the one. She signed the checks. She made the payoffs. You know, she she was the one to talk to backstage. You know, if you you weren't going to like approach the sheik, she was the one. Uh, so there was a lot of loyalty there, you know. But it also, like as I discovered, there was a lot of betrayal, you know, because sheik followed the pattern of a lot of wrestlers, you know, a lot of of guys that went on the road and you know he wasn't always loyal to his wife and they did have difficulties and friction and and they almost divorced later in life and you know i'm sure there had to be some feelings of betrayal there that this was somebody who she had really built her life around his life trying to make his dream come true you know and and you can imagine that there'd be bitterness there when he seemed you know when their marriage was on the rocks in later years, you know, thankfully they did reconcile. And I do believe from writing the book that they really did by the end, um, they were in a good place. They had really uh, grown back together again, which is, which is nice. Can't believe that she was even married. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to even believe that. <laughs> For a he very had, long time. And he had kids. Yeah, oh my God. Had... What in the world? Yeah. He was married uh, for God, uh, married in 49 and, for the rest of his life, they were together. And the, the interesting thing is um, their son, their first child, Eddie Jr., he was born almost nine months to the day from their wedding day. So they really didn't waste any time. And they had their, their oldest son, and then their second son, Tommy, was about 12 or 13 years uh, younger. So the impression I got is that when they had their own wrestling promotion and they were really raking in money and just making huge money, I think at that point, even though they were a little more advanced in age, they decided to have a second child uh, because they were obviously doing so well, you know. So, so their sons were about a dozen years apart from each other, which is also equally sad that they died in the same year. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh man. But it's funny, like if if you think like, wow, she had a family, you know, just like as a fan, especially like an old, like a fan of like the old school guys, you almost hold them in like higher regard of like, there's no way they had any life outside of wrestling. You know what I mean? Like you just, for some reason, you can't compute sometimes. Right. Well, he he uh, he was a family man, and and by all accounts, he was a dedicated family man, despite his flaws. 
In fact, I came across uh, one of the pieces that was actually sent to me by Mark Bujan, who unfortunately also passed away during the writing of the book. But Mark was, you know, one of the leading historians, maybe the leading historian of Detroit wrestling. And, and he um, really helped me so much with sending me materials. And he had a copy of a program that was written in the early 60s, and it had an article in there by Johnny Doyle, who was one of the uh, Michigan promoters before uh, Sheik took over. And in the article, Johnny Doyle writes all about um, – it's kind of weird to read how it, it completely breaks kayfabe. It's very bizarre. But he writes all about Sheik's personal life, his home life, and how different it is from his wrestling life, how his wife – you know, how devoted he is to his wife and his children. It was very strange to read, especially in a wrestling program. Um, I'm really not sure even to this day how or why they ran that article, but it was interesting to read. Wow, weird, huh? Is there anything that, like, you thought you knew and when you researched it, it was completely wrong as far as the book? There were a few things like that, and in fact, I had to be very careful because whenever I would come across something like that, I would get very paranoid because I would think, okay, this is not the narrative that I thought or that everybody thinks, and if I am wrong about this, I'm going to look really bad. And So I had to be very careful um, to make sure I had my facts right. Like, like one of the things I discovered was when Sheik passed away, a lot of people, including Dave Meltzer and The Observer – reported all these things about him, how he was, um, you know, a college football star and how he, you know, he played basketball and, you know, he was the star athlete uh, at the University of uh, Michigan or possibly Michigan State. And what I quickly learned when I was going through records was that he did not even go to high school, let alone college. Um, he was done with school by about the eighth grade. And, um, you know, when I saw this, I'm going, this can't be right, you know, I mean, but then what, what I found out was that the, the confusion was caused by the fact that the sheik, whose name was Edward, Edward Farhat, he had a brother, believe it or not, who was two years older than he was, who was named Edmund Farhat. So, so they were both Ed Farhat, and they were two years apart in age. And it was Edmund Farhat who went to to university and became a sports star and did all these things. And he became a, a sports coach in college, which was a, another thing that had been attributed to the sheep for years. And so this is decades of confusion on this subject. And I finally really put it to put it all to bed. I mean, I was literally calling these schools and universities and asking them to go through their records. I called um, St. Mary's high school <laughs> In Michigan, which doesn't even exist anymore, I had to call the, the parish of St. Mary's Church and have them look up the records to discover that it was not Edward Farhad that attended their high school. It was Edmund Farhad, and they gave me the years, and it all matched up, and you know, there was no record of him attending University of Michigan, but there was a record of Edmund, and I, you know, I, I found all these things, and like I said, I had to be so thorough because I did not want to have – you know, egg on my face when the book comes out and, and they say, well, you were dead wrong about this. And then, you know, that, that would be terrible. And, you know, I'm not going to say that there's never, uh, you know, that there couldn't be any mistakes in the book. I sincerely hope there aren't, but I worked 
my butt off to make sure that there weren't any. So, but yeah, that, that, that happened a few times of finding things out where I think sometimes he was even working people, like maybe even working his own family, like his military record. You know, he would tell people all these stories. People would tell me secondhand that they had heard that he was a, a sergeant, you know, in the war. And he couldn't have been because he was, he was a kid, right? You know, he was 18, 19 years old. People telling me that he commanded a, a tank division, which also would have, would have been possible. He was a private, you know, and he, he wasn't even in Europe for a full year. Uh, so you could see how sometimes a lot of exaggeration happens. But again, I had to be 100% sure and, and go through all the records before I contradicted um, the official story. It's amazing that with his brother, because it's like you think you have the info, and it's like, wait a second, he's got a brother with basically the same name? Like, wow, it's <laughs> the same name yeah. and almost the same age. And, you know, I, I actually talked to um, Dave uh, Melter for the book. I interviewed him, and that came up because the sheep, uh, obviously, he died in 2003. So the obituary is from many years ago, and Dave himself commented about how he made that mistake. And a lot of people were making that mistake and how, you know, he, he heard in later years that there was a brother and that there had been confusion. And actually that confusion even was going on all through Sheik's uh, life as a wrestler because he was one of those guys where there was always this urban legend around him. You know, like the story of George the Animal, Shields, uh, George the Animal Steel being, um, you know, a teacher and all this, which is based in the fact that he was – you know, a, a gym instructor uh, in a high school in, in Michigan. But there was this urban legend for Sheik for, for years around the Sheik that he was, you know, this college sports star. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, and then <laughs> some people said he was a professor and all this crazy stuff. It just grows and grows and gets out of control. But, but um, it's just not true. You know, a lot of the businesses um, – Illusion, but it was also partly the result of this confusion between the two brothers. And I even get the feeling that the Sheik himself may have encouraged that. I think he may have not minded that because it added to his uh, legend. Uh, it went so far as the fact that the Sheik is inducted into the Lansing Sports Hall of Fame. And I looked this up. He's inducted into the Lansing Sports Hall of Fame based on his school athletics record, which does not actually exist. Wow. So just like all on uh, mystique or all on, you know, stories. Yes. Yes. And if you think about it, it's like what is true, what's not. Thank God, like, yeah, you're out there because <laughs> there is so much, even Meltzer, you know, there's so many wrong stories about the Sheik. Hard to track down. Yeah, and you know he was not somebody that was, um, you know, a public speaking figure. Um, in all the work that I did, I never found an existing interview in any form that he ever gave, whether in print or recorded. He never gave one that still exists. The only hint of it that I got was. Um, the Japanese wrestling um, historian that I um, that I interviewed for the book, um, he mentioned to me that the Sheik gave him an interview in Japan when he was wrestling for FMW, 
and he talked to me about this and I begged him to see if he could find this, the tapes of this interview and share it with me. But he told me that he wasn't sure he even still had it. And I remember thinking, this is the great, you could find this thing. It's the greatest, uh, it's the greatest find ever. It's the only uh, interview that I've ever heard of the Sheik doing. And, you know, he was a pretty old man by that point, but you know, that's what I mean when I say I didn't have a lot to go on. There wasn't, um, there is nothing of him in his own words talking about his life. I mean, that's a major handicap for anybody writing a biography of somebody. I mean, think about that. Unless you're writing a biography of somebody who lived, you know, like a thousand years ago, you usually can depend on interviews and things with the person, but I had nothing. Yeah, that's insane if you think about it, because I, I mean, obviously, you know, anybody that's a wrestler probably did a thousand interviews, and this guy didn't even do one. Right. None. Not even in character. Nothing. Just absolutely nothing. Completely silent. You know, there's a story that's in the book where um takes place at the NWA annual convention. And I think it was 1976 or 75, because at the time, Terry Funk was the world champion. And apparently the story was that Terry Funk got up at the podium and he went into this whole speech about how they needed to work with young wrestlers to teach them how to talk because none of them knew how to really, <laughs> which is hilarious because this is going back 45 years ago. And they were saying this about how you know, none of the young wrestlers were good at promos and they needed promos to get people to want to come to the matches. And at that point, the Sheik, who was the Detroit promoter, he stood up and he said, you know what? I have drawn more money than anybody in this entire room. And I've never cut a promo in my entire career. Wow, that's amazing. So he, he spoke, you know, he spoke to the masses. Well, yeah, I mean, this is at the convention. This right. is at the NWA convention. Right. Not, you know, with the public. He's with right, the right. promoters. Yeah, sp spoke to yeah. his friends and other promoters. But that's yeah, just so, so interesting because he's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, in fairness, he was a very rare exception. But, yeah, and he did have managers that would speak for him for a lot of his career. He had Abdullah Farouk, who was Ernie Roth, who later became the Grand Wizard. And then he had Eddie the Brain Creechman, who, for my money, has got to be possibly the most underrated uh, wrestling manager of all time. Because he's one of these guys where, unless you, if he didn't get all over the country, you know, he, he, he was Canadian, and he was limited to a certain area where he worked in Canada and, you know, down in the, in the, in the Sheik's area in the, in the upper Midwest. And if you never got to see him in those areas there, you wouldn't know how great he was, but he was terrific, and I'd encourage anybody to seek him out. Um, he was a fantastic manager, just great at getting heat, great promo, just completely hateable guy. <laughs> and I had been in touch with his granddaughter who kind of helped me out with some remembrances of him for the book. Do you think in like today's age, he'd be able to kind of get away with not cutting any promos at all and not talking? Like, I know that it, it, it seems like crazy to, you know, like, wow, one of the biggest drugs doesn't talk. It seems like they always have a guy that starts like that. And then the guy ends up cutting promos and like, yeah, I wish he had a manager. You know what I mean? Right. Like a cane or somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't think that, I don't think he'd be able to do it for as long as he did. You're talking about one of the longest careers of all time, basically from 1947 to 1995, that was his career. And um, I don't, 
I don't think there's so many things about him that you would not be able to do today. And I sort of addressed that towards the end of the book. He was very much of his time. Um, I don't think you'd be able to do a gimmick like he had today. I don't think that you would be able to do the kind of working style that he did where, you know, his matches were not exactly what you would get, you know, five stars for in, in the observer anywhere else. You know, it was a lot of uh, stabbing and biting and throwing fire. And, and that was what he did every single night, but it worked. It worked in that time. And he was the hottest heel drawing card in the country. Um, again, I, I think he was a man of his time and he was able to do it because of when he happened to come along. Um, you you had to remember with the fans too, they were, there was much more suspension of disbelief back then, which I think is a beautiful thing where people were, fans were genuinely terrified of them, just, just absolutely terrified. And if you tried that today with the very super smart fans that we have today, there's no way you could do something like that because what they want the most is to be in on the act and, and to be in on the show and everything's very tongue in cheek and winking at the audience. And he never winked at the audience, you know? And, and I think, uh, I don't think an audience today would know what to do with something like that. They'd probably reject it, unfortunately. Yeah. It, um, like, I don't know how they would react with this, you know, this current fan base, not to say anything bad about them, but, you know, they're a different fan base for sure. Different. No, right. It's just, it's just different. The business is different. The fans are different. There's no, there's no question. So when he kind of like first got into the business, you, you're saying it's back in 1947, was like, what was the business like then? Like, was it hot? Was it making a ton of money? Or was it when he got hot, then it started making a ton of money? Well, he came into the business pretty much right out of the war. So he had been after he, he started wrestling amateur wrestling in the army in Europe. And he actually won some titles over there when they would have the different kind of divisions, you know, compete against each other in sport. Especially after the German surrender, that he spent about nine months in Europe after the surrender, just kind of on cleanup. And, you know, they had to pass the time and so they had a lot of sports. He got into wrestling when he when he got back he was wrestling for the ymca which a lot of that's how a lot of guys in that era got into pro wrestling he was doing wrestling at the ymca and there were some promoters in the midwest one of them was harry light who was the um the nwa was just getting off the ground but he would become the nwa's kind of detroit area promoter and he had an assistant called harry uh, uh bert ruby sorry bert ruby who also you know, ran a lot of the wrestling in the suburban areas uh, around Detroit and Michigan, and they kind of discovered him, and they they kind of helped to mentor him, and they developed a persona together. But um, at the, in the late '40s, really, the business was in a boom period because you're talking about the beginning of television, and that kind of woke wrestling up. Wrestling had been hurting for a while. You know, there was an expose in the thirties about it being rigged and, you know, which it's hard to believe today, but a lot of people were genuinely shocked when this came out and wrestling was not doing well for a while. It didn't do well during the war because a lot of the men were away, you know, the, both the fans and the wrestlers. So um, it was a tough time. 
there were a few people that were making money and doing well during the war, but it wasn't a hot time for the business. But, but that late 40s period with Gorgeous George, and then you had Antonino Rocca in the in the East Coast and people like that coming up, and the sheep wound up getting hooked in with the um, the Chicago promotion run by Fred Kohler, which was the most watched promotion at the time because they were on national television. They were like the WWE of that era, late 40s, early 50s. So when you talk to people who were around then, if anybody you know talks to their grandparents or maybe people in their family that they knew that were into wrestling in that time period, that's what they were watching. Uh, they were mostly watching Fred Kohler's Wrestling from Marigold Arena on the Dumont Network. And the Sheik got pulled into that. Um, Jim Barnett, who later became a very powerful NWA promoter, Jim Barnett was the assistant to Fred Kohler, and he he sort of discovered um, the Sheik, who was then known as the Sheik of Araby. He discovered him kind of bouncing around in Michigan and Indiana and all these places, Wisconsin, and he said, you know, you'd be a great fit. Like, we're on television. We need characters. You know, we need guys that aren't just guys in tights, you know, wrestling. We need, like, characters, and you're a character, and we want to put you on TV, and this is when they had, you know, Buddy Rogers and... Mr. America, Gene Stan Lee, and Killer Kowalski was starting out, and all these interesting characters, Rocky Stark, uh, Carl Von Hess, and the Sheik became part of that. He was not, in that time, he was not a top star. He wasn't a main event guy in that era, but he was a mid-carder, and he was, um, you know, he, he was generating interest because he was unique, and that kind of put him in front of people for the first time. And then, you know, slowly but surely, it probably took him another 10 years or so to really become a very hot act in wrestling. So he kind of obviously becomes a huge legend in the, the Michigan area. Was that his biggest run or his biggest territory, like his, his best area, if you will, geographically speaking? Was it that Michigan territory? Yeah, if you look at his entire career, you'd have to say yes, because, you know, for most of his career, sometimes he'd be in and out of there. You know, like he did spend a couple of years wrestling for Vince Sr. Um, in Capital Wrestling, which would later become the WWF. So he got around, but um, his home base was always that uh, Michigan-Toronto area in Ontario, that whole area. And so you'd have to say that really all throughout Michigan, Indiana, and, 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 Ontario, and, and rather um, yeah, the province of Ontario in Canada, those were his hottest areas. But, I mean, he really went everywhere. He was a truly national star and then later an international star. So, I mean, in, even in those territory days where you had guys that were local or regional attractions, he got to the point, especially when you get to, like, say, the 1960s, that's really like his heyday, you know, where everywhere he goes, he's selling out. He was hot in California. That was probably after after Ontario and Michigan, Indiana, uh, California was probably his hottest area. He wrestled for Roy Shire he in northern California. He wrestled for Mike LaBelle in southern California for years. He also had a ton of success in western texas wrestling for the funk family in the amarillo territory he got really hot there that was actually the first time he ever was consistently main eventing that was even 
going back to, I think, even the 50s. Um, so he was hot there. Um, New York, you know, in, in the 60s, he came back and he had this huge main event feud with Bruno San Martino where they went everywhere. They went to Boston. They went to Philadelphia. They went to Washington, D.C., uh, Madison Square Garden, just their whole that whole circuit where you can make so much money. Um, they did that. Um, he, he went pretty much anywhere he wanted to go. There were very few territories that he really never worked. Uh, one of them was Crockett. He never really worked the Carolinas, ironically enough, um, but pretty much almost everywhere else. I'm always curious, like, how big was he legitimately? What was his size? Because he doesn't seem like a big guy, yet everybody's scared to death of him. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't a big guy, but he created an image of himself that made himself seem bigger than he was. Um, the interesting thing is there's conflict over that. You know, I had some people say to me that he was, you know, close to six feet, that he was, you know, 5'10", 5'11", like that. But then I had other people who told me, you know, it was more like 5'7". And I tend to believe that because I think that probably when he was wrestling, he was probably wearing kind of lifted boots to make himself a little taller too. Like, like Kevin Sullivan, for example, told me. Now, Kevin Sullivan is not a tall man. <laughs> and Kevin Sullivan told me that he was just slightly taller than him. So, I mean, I believe him because Kevin Sullivan spent a ton of time around around the Sheik in, in you know, just hanging around socially. So I, I, I believe that, especially away from the, the matches. So I'm thinking he was probably about 5'7", and probably just a little bit over uh, – well, he went by – his wrestling weight was obviously – you know, the, those weights are always inflated. But I think his actual weight was probably somewhere in the 205, 210, 215 range. It's funny, uh, Sullivan, he always says to me that if you're working the bigger guy, never sell because it makes you look bigger even though you're shorter. And I'm sure Sheik had that same philosophy of less selling, you know what I mean, because I'm the smaller guy and the, and the bigger guy will do more selling. I'll look even bigger, seem even bigger. Well, he never, <laughs> especially later on, he never sold anything. Right, yeah. That, he yeah, yeah. For anybody. Yep. He just kind of steamrolled his way through the match. But the interesting thing you see with him, and there were some people that brought this up when I interviewed them too, is that um, because he wasn't a very big guy, it was a an unusual visual because a lot of the times he'd be working with baby faces that were bigger than he was. So that's not really what you're used to seeing, especially with a heel that's supposed to be as fearsome and terrifying as him. But people bought it. Nobody had a problem with it. Because his persona was so powerful that it made up for it. Like, you know, his most famous feud that really defined his career was Bobo Brazil. And Bobo Brazil was massive, you know, a, a large man, uh, maybe like six feet, six inches or more, six, seven, just a big, solid guy. And he would sell like crazy for the Sheik, you know, and, and the Sheik would would maul him in the ring, you know, and you always were concerned for Bobo's safety and, you know, is the Sheik going to kill him? And you bought it, even though you, you look at the two of them and you go, my God, he's like, this looks like he could annihilate the Sheik, but that's not the way that they worked. And like I said, because people believed in, in the product more back then, there was that suspension of disbelief 
whereas they weren't looking at it as much as entertainment, you know, they bought it. You know, they're not watching it going, uh, you know, trying to pick it apart. This was how it was presented to them, and that's what they believed. So really, if you think about the Sheik made a huge name for himself in Japan, too. And it's funny, it's like you could be over here, but once you're over there, I mean, they like remember you forever. Like their loyalty to guys is like unmatched. That's what Dave said, which <laughs> that's his quote in the book of how. And oh, wow. Know, oh, geez. Know. But 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 he said that um, the difference with Japan is when you become a legend in Japan, you stay a legend. Hmm. You know, you, yeah. it doesn't fade away. And that helped him, actually, because he was a big star in Japan in the 70s, mostly for Giant Baba. And he was one of the top Gaijin um, heels, really, maybe the top one of that earlier generation, you know, before Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and those guys started coming over. Um, And he stopped going there in the 80s. Partly because he was blacklisted in the NWA and Baba was an NWA member. But then later in life, in the 90s, when he was hooked up with Sabu and Atsushi Onida was starting FMW, Onida wanted him as one of their people. And Onida had remembered him from all Japan. Onida had been a young boy. Onida had carried his bags. Onida had you know, worshipped him. And he wanted to bring him, and he didn't even know if he was still alive because no one in Japan had seen him in, in, you know, 15 years or more. So when he came there, I mean, yes, it wasn't all Japan. It wasn't Baba's promotion. It wasn't the big time of Japanese wrestling, right? It was probably, in some ways, FMW was like the ECW of Japan. But I would say that they did much better crowds for some of their bigger shows. But um, people remembered him. The fans that were old enough remembered him, and the wrestlers remembered him. He was revered, even though he was a shadow of his former self. His health wasn't good. He could hardly get around. I mean, he was—he had been a, a fairly limited worker before that, and now he could—he was having trouble even getting in and out of the ring. But it didn't matter because the people still revered him, and he also had Sabu with him, who was just starting out to really do all the hard work and kind of carry the matches. Absolutely. Did Sabu play a big part in the book? Um, You know, I wanted, uh, uh, Sabu was also somebody that I would have loved to have had um, involved. Unfortunately, the issue is that I cannot, and I'm not authorized to pay for interviews and ECW press. That's not their policy. God knows I don't have the money to do it. <laughs> and uh, so we were not really able to work out uh, an arrangement where uh, he would be able to help us, you know. Uh, and I understand that. I respect his decision. You know, I know that his health is not the greatest, and I, I really completely understand. But the problem is if if you pay one person for an interview, you know, have to pay everybody. <laughs> and then before you know it, uh, publishing companies go out of business. Um, so, you know, that's just typically not the way it's done, uh, to pay for interviews for, for books. Um, I was able to read his biography, his autobiography, and I was also very close friends, um, with his late girlfriend, Melissa Coates, who unfortunately was somebody else who passed away during the, the book. But, 
we had been in touch and Melissa had here and there been kind of like a go-between um, to Sabu, but we really didn't have any direct contact. Heard that about Sabu. He definitely, um, you know, he, he wants to get paid for, for everything, which is fine. You know, it is like what I said, it, I it understand, is. What it you is. know, Abdullah yeah. the Butcher was the same way. I had, I had that issue with Abdullah. I wanted to have him involved and it was a non-starter. You know, it had mm -hmm. to be money and, um, just out of my hands you know it's out of my hands to do that i i can't you know the, the my my publishers aren't going to do it and if i start handing out that kind of money i have to have my head examined you know i mean especially for what i'm getting paid to write this book um so it just was uh a non-starter there were a couple of people like that that i couldn't get involved with it the family also among them but I, I had so many great people, though, anyway. I mean, I talked to Terry Funk. I talked to, as I mentioned, Kevin Sullivan, Tommy Dreamer, Rob Van Dam, um, Killer Tim Brooks right before he passed away, Irish Mickey Doyle. I mean, uh, so many people, you name it. I mean, uh, Dave Meltzer, like I said, Mark Bujan and Dave Rosinski, the Detroit wrestling you know, gurus, all these great people that were willing to talk to me and and kind of give me their, their insights and their – uh, remembrances. So I, I, it, that did help piece a lot of the story together for sure. Sheik, is he the greatest heel of all time? Well, I think, you know, whenever you ask that question with wrestling, it's such an open-ended question because there's so many criteria and metrics and things. But I would say after writing this book that I'm very much in line with the thing that Jim Cornette said about the Sheik, which was that uh, there was never, uh, there was never any uh, anybody who drew more money, especially a heel, who drew more money in more places for the for more years than the Sheik did. So if you're going by that, if you're going by sheer drawing power, especially in a day when you could really measure that in the in the sales of tickets and things, and in how many people want to see you, um, he was a consistent top draw. I mean, he was the hottest heel in North American wrestling, I would say all through the 60s and into the first half of the 70s, at least 12 to 15 years. And, you know, there are plenty of other years where he was hot too, but during that period he was the hottest. And, you know, Meltzer just put out in the last Observer a week or two ago, he had these records of, you know, who was the top drawing card in, in every year, basically, going back to like 1900. And if you look at the late 60s, early 70s, the Sheik is the top name for every one of those years, not just as a heel, but just for anybody. And for a heel, that's a really big deal to be your the top draw in the entire business of wrestling year after year after year. So if you're going by that, I would say he absolutely was the greatest if you're going by you know believability and who who really generated those emotions of hatred and fear and made people believe um he's your man i mean you know there have been other you know you could make a list of the all-time great heels i'm thinking of people like buddy rogers and rick flair and harley race and freddie blassie and killer kowalski and you know there are people like that that belong on the list. And, you know, you could probably make an argument for every one of those guys if you wanted to. Roddy Piper, you know. But um, I would have to say that by a lot of criteria, I would say yes, that the Sheik was the greatest heel 
in the history of pro wrestling. I don't know if uh, a lot of people would uh, argue with you. I think you might be, um, you know, pretty accurate on that for sure. What else as far as like you, I know we'll probably get back into the sheet just a little bit, but about you, like, where did you start in wrestling? What else have you written? Because I know, you, I think, actually, that you wrote for WWE Magazine, right? Yeah, I worked for WWE from 2000 to 2007. And I was I started as a staff writer, but I eventually became editor. Um, so I worked in their publications department. And I worked on WWE Magazine. It was WWF at that time when I started. Um, Raw Magazine, SmackDown Magazine, you know, all their publications. Um, I've written – I'm a current staff writer for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and I've been writing for them for about 15 years on and off, but pretty consistently, consistently the last two or three. Um, I also write for Inside the Ropes, which is the new magazine out of the U.K., um, I'm the co-host of the PWI podcast, and I just started my own new wrestling podcast, which actually our first episode got posted this week. It's called Shut Up and Wrestle. So, you know, I've, I've got a lot of uh, wrestling things happening. You know, this book here, uh, Blood and Fire, is the fourth book that I have written so far and the third book on wrestling. So I wrote WWE Legends. I published that in 2006 through WWE, and then Pro Wrestling FAQ came out in 2015, and now I've got um, Blood and Fire, the, the biography of the Sheik, which comes out in April, and April 12th, um, and you know, I have, I've written other books, and I have another book that I'm actually working on now, my next book, I'm, I'm almost halfway finished writing it, it's not wrestling related, though, it's a book about the history of superheroes, which... As you can imagine, there's a little bit of crossover there, but uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to keep busy. I I love I just love writing about wrestling. I mean, there's lots of other things that I write about, but that's my favorite subject. So, what was the experience like working for the WWE? Well, let's see. <laughs> like a lot of people, you know, you can say that it started as a dream come true, and it ended as sort of a nightmare. You know. <laughs> something that I couldn't wait to be over. Um, it's just one of those things. It's um, It was a dream job. I had grown up as a fan. I'd been a wrestling fan since I was 12 years old. And um, I had a ton of fun. You know, the first five years especially was a blast. Um, really was everything you would imagine it would be, just meeting everyone. I mean, everyone you could name. Uh, I met them. If, if they were involved in wrestling, especially before if they broke in before like the last, you know, 15 years, <laughs> I met them and worked with them um, and knew them. And so there was that, and it was, it was a lot of fun, but in the last couple of years, you know, it, like with anything else, sort of the, the bloom is off the rose and it can be a tough company to work for sometimes, you know, there was a lot of turnover in that department. And those last couple of years, it really stopped being as much fun just because of all, all the changes and just the politics and things. You just get a little sick of it. But, but I mean, it was a great time. It was at its best. It was the most fun that I've ever had and ever expect to have um, at a job. That's for sure. Did you always like want to get into not only writing, but did you always want to kind of get into the wrestling business? Well, I wanted to write about wrestling even 
from when I was in college. Like I, I had a column, a wrestling column in the college newspaper, the Kingsman at Brooklyn college. I had a, a, a column called wrestling lowdown and I got started doing that. And then I was also doing, um, articles in my local neighborhood papers, like covering indie shows in Brooklyn, which is where I grew up, Brooklyn, New York. And so at that time, this is like mid nineties, I started getting it into my head. Like maybe I could, you know, write for wrestling magazines. And I started sending some of my work around to, um, I sent to London publishing, you know, pro wrestling illustrated. Um, I sent to Vince Russo at WWF magazine at the time. I sent to, uh, God, George Napolitano, just every magazine I could get my hands on. Um, I sent them stuff. I really didn't get anywhere and I kind of gave up on it. And I had been, I had taken a job out of college, uh, a writing job, but it was, you know, not wrestling related. It was more kind of in the world of book publishing and, then the WWE opportunity presented itself, and I grabbed it. Um, I wound up working there for seven years, and even though you know, since that time I've had many other different kinds of writing jobs, and I eventually became a teacher, and right now I do a lot of tutoring, and and uh, you know I'm an educator. Um, I still enjoy writing, and I do a lot of freelance writing, and and now even podcasting, and a lot of that tends to gravitate towards. Uh, wrestling because I've just made so many contacts over the years and it's a subject I've researched so much that um, you know I always come back to it and if I had my way I would you know that's all I'd be doing if you know if I if I get enough work that would be uh, my dream for sure to just keep focusing on the uh, the business that has fascinated me now for 35 years. Were you always a WWF guy or were you into other territories as well? Well, I grew up in the Northeast, so I'm one of those people, you know, when you talk to people from other parts of the country, I'm not sure where you're from and I'm not sure how old you are. But when you, when you talk to people from other parts of the country, especially if they're older, they'll often tell you, well, you know, I grew up on, you know, this certain brand of wrestling, um, this company, whether it was whatever, the AWA or or championship wrestling from Florida or, you know, St. Louis or whatever you grew up with, um, world-class, whatever it may be. And they'll say, oh, and then, you know, the WWF just came in and took over and everything changed. Um, I never had that experience because the WWF was our territory, you know, going back to um, the 60s or even before that. So I never, you know, I never was exposed to a lot of other things until later when I really took an interest. Um, the first wrestling I knew in the late 80s, it was all WWF. I mean, we didn't even, I didn't even have cable, so I couldn't watch, you know, World Championship Wrestling. I couldn't watch the AWA on ESPN or, you know, World Class or, you know, stuff that was bouncing around on cable, you know, Bill Watts and things like that. Um, I didn't have a lot of that. I learned a lot about it from reading wrestling magazines. And then, you know, as I got a little older, like getting into the 90s when I was, you know, kind of in high school and college and really kind of, you know, becoming an adult, I was able to start, you know, trading tapes and doing things like that and and finding things out and learning. And, you know, then the Internet came along and opened up so many doors of, of information and research and you know, being able to see footage and things, and it expanded my mind. So, you know, I mean, I started out 
as a WWF kid in the late 80s and early 90s. But, you know, now, you know, I, my fascination is for the whole history of the business. And, you know, the territorial era is my favorite era to learn about and research, you know, and I've learned so much over the years that I, I, I can't help but wish I had been around at that time to really be able to follow it. I talked to people like Tom Burke and, you know, Dave and Dave, like I said, Dave Brzezinski and even Dave Meltzer, people that got to experience more of that. And I'm jealous. I'm jealous of their, of their experience. I'll tell you, I'm about 40 and my dad sold insurance to Pedro Morales. So definitely a, <laughs> uh, definitely a WWF guy, but I, I was, I loved NWA and WCW. I love going back and being a historian and learning about all the territories, but Hogan guy, of course, just by, uh, right. By proxy, you know, just by being my age and being in this territory of New Jersey, definitely Hogan guy. Okay, there you go. There you go. So you were you going to Brendan Byrne Arena a lot? Yes, MSG occasionally, but Brendan Byrne was is the home the home arena. Right. I mean, I would go out there occasionally, but with me, it was mostly Madison Square Garden and Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. But I remember, you know, in the localized television. I'm wondering, you probably got the same exact, maybe you didn't, I don't know, but, but the, in the localized broadcast that we would get, the arenas that they would advertise for house shows would be Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum, and Brendan Byrne Arena in the Meadowlands. Like, those were the big three that you, they were constantly pushing for. Yes. And yeah. um, Brendan Byrne was, you know, which obviously later on became the, co- oh, what was it called? Um, Eyes out They changed what right now it's the Izod Center, but didn't it have another name? Oh, yes, man, it had another name. <laughs> it's, I, um, now we I'm always drawing a blank on it. It's funny we always called it um, just the Meadowlands, but right. Um, I know it was Brendan Byrne. It's so funny. Um, they gave it a corporate name before Izod, and I can't. God, I can't remember because you know what? I went to SummerSlam '97. Me which too. was there. Yep, me too. And okay, then that was Heart and Soul, Bret Hart and The Undertaker. That was the night that Steve Austin broke his neck. But Continental that, Airlines Arena. That's the that's yes. it. Yes, because yep. I remember in ninety seven they were already calling it that, the Continental Airlines Arena. And of course now it's the Izod Center. Now I'm sure you probably know, and this is if you're forty, this is right before you were born, but when they opened that place in eighty one the first wrestling show they had there was the Bruno San Martino retirement show. Oh, wow. Didn't realize that. So always yeah, was thought of as like a big, uh, big drawing yeah, card. They opened it up. They opened it up with that show. It was the first time it was a new building. The WWF was coming there and, you know, Bruno was almost basically retired by that point. Like for the past year he had been, he was kind of like the undertaker, you know, he became in the last few years, like he'd come out for big events but he wasn't really on the road and he wasn't working regular dates and things, but they had this official, you know, farewell to Bruno and the match. It was against uh, Georgie animal steel. And it was, I think summer of 81, if I'm remembering right, it was his last official, you know, match with the WWF before he retired. Wow. Damn. Look at that. What a historic, uh, building or you know way yeah. way to make it a historic building when you first open it wow yeah i didn't get i didn't go there all that much but like i said i did go to SummerSlam 97 and there were there was probably one or two house shows 
that I went to, but really the Garden and Nassau, those were those were my homes. And really the heyday of me going to those shows would probably be the 90s, really. Like 91 up through, well, I would say even from the tail end of 1990 up through about 97-ish or 96, I was at, I was almost every month. I would be either at the Garden or Nassau Coliseum, depending on where they were, every month, every other month. And, you know, the tickets were a lot more affordable back then. You could get, you could sit in the 100 sections at Madison Square Garden for 50 bucks, you know, it was a, <laughs> a different time for sure. But uh, that was, I was, oh my God, I practically lived in those arenas back then. I was looking at my WrestleMania 10 ticket from MSG. I was there. Yeah, I think we were 18 rows back, if I remember correctly, and it was the ticket was $75. I was like, oh my god, what a what a steal! Unbelievable. Yeah, I was uh, yeah, I was in something like section one 120 something or something like that. Really, really good seats. I never really liked being on the floor all that much because you can't unless you're like really close to the ring, you can't see anything, you know. If, uh, if you just uh, you can barely see the canvas because of the the angle of how you're sitting. I, I remember, I think in all that time, I only had floor seats one time, and it was SummerSlam. Oh uh, no, uh, Survivor Series '96 at the Garden, which was Bret Hart and Stone Cold, and the night that Psycho Sid won the title from Shawn Michaels. And I had our seats were the last row of ringside which is terrible you know i couldn't see a damn thing the minute all i saw was the backs of the heads of the people sitting in front of me basically i had to get up and stand up and lean against the wall to even try to see anything i was basically watching it on the on the monitors which uh, you probably remember in those days were very unreliable big time it's funny they were like... constantly going out it's funny too because I always thought that I'm like, oh, you want close seats, but not really. I kind of rather be up a little bit. You want to be elevated yeah, so you see the ring. You don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be too high up or too far. But I, I always like that first section up off the floor. That's you can really yep. see everything. You're above the ring. You can look down on it. I mean, you want to be higher than the 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 ring, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't see in the ring. That's the thing. Yeah, very, very true. So as we hit the wind down, we head towards the finish. Just a couple quick hitters. Favorite wrestler of sure. all time? My favorite wrestler of all time are, that I actually, you know, during my time as a fan that I actually got to see, um, I would say is Bret Hart. Um, he's He was my sentimental favorite. You know, I was really in the sweet spot as a fan when he was getting his singles push and he was the kind of wrestler that I enjoyed watching. And I remember being so excited when they started pushing him because I, if I may differ with you and a lot of people, I really wasn't that into Hogan, even as a kid. Um, I, I wanted to see, I liked the more athletic style of wrestling. And at that time in the WWF, they weren't really putting those guys in main events, you know? And um, so when Bret Hart was at that level, Oh man, I was thrilled. It was like fantasy booking in my head of what I would never expect him to do, you know? And so I loved watching him. I mean, that era from basically SummerSlam 91 when he when he beats Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental title 
all the way through the screw job, honestly, like his whole run there is just phenomenal. The matches that he just bring out the best in, in everybody, you know, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention Ric Flair, who I think in a lot of ways, even if I'm looking at it objectively, um, was probably the greatest all around wrestling performer, um, of all time, just in the sense of, especially in the modern era of being able to put it all together, you know, working in the ring, talking on the mic, which was never really Bret Hart's strong suit, you know, just kind of doing it all and the image and being able to do those one hour matches and work every night and work with such a wide variety of opponents and be so entertaining. You know, I know people say that sometimes his matches got repetitive, but I think especially if you look at his earlier stuff, you see that that's not the case. You know, he might have gotten a little, he might have gotten a little more dependent on repetition later on, but in his early years, he was just untouchable, you know? So, I mean, those two guys are very high on my list for sure. Can't argue with either one of those two, for sure. Brett, I'm unbelievable. Kind of unfortunate, though, he had to have that run after Hogan because it's almost like people were expecting, like, WWE to continue that huge money momentum, you know, and just keep being the, the cash cow, but it just, it's not going to work out like that. There's, you know, ebbs and flows no. in the business, and you, you can't follow that. And he gets, unfortunately, I think, unfairly blamed for that, you know, the whole idea of, well, he was the top guy at the time when the company was, like, going down the drain. And, you know, I understand that. You know, he didn't Yeah, he but he didn't, didn't get have... to... He didn't get to beat Hogan. He didn't get to beat Warrior. He no. didn't get to beat Savage on TV. I mean, crazy. Right. They didn't really – they put him behind the eight ball. And I think – but the, the thing, too, is that he didn't quite have the same kind of um, it factor that gets you over with the mainstream and makes you a huge star that some of those other people have. Like – you know, that aspect of the business, it, it, unfortunately, it has nothing to do really with you know, how good of a, of, a, of a technician you are or a worker or whatever you want to call it. You know, like Hogan became this larger than life thing by standing there and putting his hand on his ear. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he'd get, the same, he'd get the same reaction, if not more. Um, he just had that thing. And and, you know, there's some people that can do both, like Randy Savage is a good example of that. I mean, an incredible worker in the ring, and he had that larger-than-life thing. Bret Hart was, like they say, you know, the wrestler's wrestler. He was, he was the old-school, you know, hard-nosed, in-the-ring, getting-the-job-done wrestling champion. You know, and, and, he, and so I don't think he ever – he was never going to be another Hogan. And as far as I'm concerned, as a fan, I'm fine with that. I mean, you know, I say this to people all the time. It's like I have to always separate what my personal tastes are from what is the best thing for business. Like if I'm a promoter and I have a chance to book in my main event, if I have a time machine and they're saying, do you want to have in your prime Hulk Hogan? in your main event or do you want to have in your prime Bret Hart and you can only have one I'm picking Hulk Hogan because I want to I want to get the biggest house I could get you know and even though I'd rather watch Bret Hart in the ring I think you got to keep those things separate you know but if you're asking me my personal tastes Bret Hart all the way 
Is there a favorite match you have? Of Bret Hart? Just in general. It could be Bret, I guess. My favorite, my personal favorite match of all time is actually a Ric Flair match. It's Ric Flair uh, versus Harley Race at Starrcade 83. When Flair gets the belt back from Race in the steel cage, and which was the first time the NWA title ever changed hands in a steel cage, and it was Flair's second title. And if you if you hear interviews with him, he talks about how that was the title reign where he really felt like he hit his stride. Like he wasn't quite ready the first time when he beat Dusty Rhodes. And when he beat Race, that was like him entering his prime. And there's just something I love about that match. I go back to it so much. And you have Gordon Soley and Bob Cottle doing commentary. And you would close your eyes and you would swear to God that you were watching a sporting event. I mean, they're just so damn good at selling the emotion and the reality of what you're watching. And, um, you know, I've read a lot about it over the years about how a lot of it was they botched certain spots and things because they had uh, Gene Kaniski as the referee. They didn't have a regular referee, and apparently he didn't quite know what he was doing. And some of the spots were blown. But, I mean, if anything, it only adds to the reality of the match. It's just everything I love about old school wrestling is summed up in that match. I love it. Now, as far as the Sheik is concerned, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real story of wrestling's original Sheik, give us one last push to the book and where everybody can get it. Sure, absolutely. So the book comes out on April 12th. Um, as you said, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Um, you can pre-order it. It's anywhere you get books, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever you order books online. I mean, Amazon is typically where most people go. Um, they're taking pre-orders, and if you order it now, the people who pre-order it will get the books first. They'll get it immediately, so as soon as it's made available by ECW Press. So I know people who have been doing that. Um, there is going to be a um, a digital version as well, you know, a Kindle version. And there's even going to be an audiobook version, which I'll be recording myself. So I'm um, very excited. And, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of updating people regularly on my own podcast about it, too. Shut Up and Wrestle. People can listen to that, too, on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. And I'm always I'm, – I'm, I plan to talk a lot about the book in the weeks to come. So hopefully people love it and learn a lot about the sheet from reading it. Awesome stuff. I am very much looking forward to that book. He's one of those guys with the mystique and aura that you don't see much of anymore with wrestling. So very fascinating guy with the cheek. Ryan, thank you so much for all the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies brother.